If you will, turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 3 John. Go all the way to the back, and then backtrack just a few pages. Revelations, from back to front. Revelations, Jude, and then 3 John. And 3 John tells you a little something. 3 John comes after 1 and 2 John. I know it's uh, hard to believe. But the thing about 3 John is we believe that these were probably a collection of letters written together by, by John, the Apostle. And that these three letters that were written together come with a very specific intent to reach out to some believers that John had discipled. And specifically these believers that John had discipled, most likely this is being written to a church If you were to go to the book of Revelations, and John writes seven different letters to, or seven, he has seven different addresses to the different churches in the book of Revelation. These were churches that John probably planted, and he was encouraging and caring for. In this same way, John, this is probably one of these churches. We don't necessarily know exactly which one. However, that said, what we do know when we look at this little letter of 3 John, is that we are called to faithfully love one another. And the call is to pour out into one another's lives with the truth and by the truth that was set forth by Jesus Christ. We are called to faithfully love one another, pouring into one another's lives with the truth set forth by Christ. What we'll do here this week, you know, when I, when I picked this passage... I wanted something that very practically followed up with the book of Malachi. Right? Malachi is all about putting away that dead religion and having hearts which are fully devoted to the Lord. But if our hearts are fully devoted to the Lord, what does it look like for us to live this out? Which is the, what brings this little letter of 3 John. And so we'll do the first eight verses this Sunday, and we'll focus on 9 through 15 next Sunday. So let me read for us this morning, 3 John, verses 1 through 8. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You would do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I grew up in Northeast Ohio, and my father, I was a, I'm the son of a Reformed Baptist minister. My father was a pastor for as long as I can remember, uh, but he just retired this last year. He was in ministry for about 50 years. So I grew up in the church. I grew up in the church, and I've seen what it looks like for the, the ebbs and flows of church life and the community life. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's the insider's perspective that you get as a child of a pastor. And growing up in this church, it was a church not all too different than Third Reform, 
a smaller congregation like this. You, you know kind of the different things that are going on in the life of the church. And as a young child, about probably about 12, 13 years old, there, were, there was a particular, young, uh, particular older man in the church who began reaching out to me and discipling me. And it was the sort of thing where he would say, hey, I'm going to come by on Saturday morning, I'm going to grab you, and we're going to go to the archery range. And we're going we're gonna to shoot for a couple hours. And that might seem like a benign enough thing, but there was so much more going on than just learning how to shoot a bow. He was taking that time, and he was instructing me on what it looked like to be a follower of Christ. He was pouring into my life, and he was sharing with me his experiences. This man had seen a lot of different things. His wife had died. His wife um, had died in a car accident many years before. He had experienced pain, just the realities of life. And I got an insider's view of what that was. And I'll never forget one of the things he said to me one of these Saturday mornings as we were, as we were heading out, uh, just like we did for a few years. He said to me at one point, you know, your father pours into all of us. And so it is our responsibility to pour into people like you. Your father pours into all of us as adults. It's our responsibility to care for young people like yourselves and to make sure that you are being trained up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That has stuck with me for years. When I, if you remember the sermon I preached a few weeks ago, where I, I talked about how I came to a point in my life where I was trying to decide in college, do I really want to keep following? Is this Jesus thing real? Do I keep following this? Do I keep going after this? Or do I walk away? It was those words. I think I mentioned to you all that there were older men who had been in my life who had poured into me. It was those words that had an orienting, a reorienting impact upon my life. Because that man had taken time to disciple and invest in me. That's essentially what we're being given a little insider's view of this morning as we read this letter to Gaius. This is not a letter written to a large church, to, to a church at whole. This is not a letter written to a group of people. This is a personal one-on-one -on -one letter written from John to Gaius. And we see here that John's impact upon this believer. We see his impact. We see, first of all, an identification of the leadership role that John had in this man's life. He says, the elder, or the word in Greek is the presbyteros, from which we get the term presbytery. Right? It's where the how we have the, the leadership church structure with the elders in the church. He's writing with authority as an elder to beloved Gaius. We see here, when he uses this word beloved, that there is genuine care and affection for this individual. He was a pastor who, John is a pa essentially a pastor. This word is used multiple times throughout the New Testament. John is essentially a pastor to this individual, and he's expressing his love for him in this personal letter. The other thing you're going to notice as you begin reading through this little passage is that the word truth is used four different times 
in these first eight verses. The word truth is used four different times. And what this essentially is, is the evidence of what exactly it was that John was teaching to guys. What exactly was it that he had been learning from John? He had been learning the truth. We see in verse 1, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Well, what is this truth? We see it in verse 3. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. What is this truth? As indeed you are walking in the truth. What is the truth? Verse 8, therefore we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. What is the truth that John is speaking of here? What is the truth? The truth is that Christ had been made manifest in this world. That Christ came, that his physical presence was here on this earth. There had begun to arise these different beliefs that maybe Christ hadn't really come. The farther out they got from both the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Christ, there began to be individuals who started to ask, did Jesus actually come? Did he actually do what the apostles were claiming that had happened? This book is being written... We assume the latter half of the first century, somewhere in the 75 to 90 A.D. range. That's far enough out at this point that you're going to have seen new Christians, who had, or you're going to see people who are being, hearing for the first time the news of Christ, who may not have had an ability or an opportunity to observe Christ on this earth. And yet there were still individuals alive who had. And so this becomes a very prominent question amongst the church at this time. Did this really happen? Did this really occur? If we were to go to 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul states what exactly it is that it occurred. Verses 1 through 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures. This is the truth to which the apostles refer to when they talk about this this truth. Do you believe that Christ came, died, rose again, and ascended into heaven? That he is the Son of God. John also addresses this truth. You don't necessarily need to go there, but I will read it for us. John also addresses this truth in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The truth is that 
Christ truly came, that he truly is the Son of God, that he died on behalf of sinners, that he rose again from the dead, and he now sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. However, we're also told in John 8, 32, that this truth does not exist in abstract. This truth has an impact upon our lives. So Jesus said to the Jews, John 8, verses 31 and 32, if you, to the Jews who had believed in him, believed him, not in him, believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So the truth has an impact. You are, you are liberated from your sinfulness. You, are, you no longer need to live in bondage to sin, but rather the truth has a transformative effect upon your life, and that is that it sets you free And we see now, as John is addressing Gaius, the impact of this truth upon this younger Christian's life. So what exactly does this truth do? How does one teach this truth from one person to another? How is it that Gaius came to understand this truth? There's a word here that we would use. It's called discipleship. In the same way that this truth was imparted to me as a young man many years ago by older men in my church, we have a responsibility to impart this truth as Christians today. So what does the discipleship process look like? What does it look like for us to impart truth upon others? Is it us standing on social media, making our claims of what we believe to be our own potential version of truth, Is it us standing on the street corners yelling out loud what truth is? Is it us, or is it something a little bit different? Does it look a little bit different to proclaim this truth? The first thing we see is the focus on truth, the need to focus on truth. What does John say here? He says, specifically to Gaius, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. This implies a few things. For someone to be walking in truth, there needs to be a relationship that pre-exists. There needs to be a relationship there for one to continue walking in truth and for one to be considered a child of that individual. It shows us here that John spent time instructing Gaius on how to live of what it meant to follow this truth. Essentially what he's doing is they took time looking at the truth, that is, who Christ proclaimed himself to be, that is, how the scriptures spoke to who Christ is. They took the time to examine this, and as this truth, as the the head knowledge began to impact Gaius now, we see that the heart begins to act in a certain way. There's a change of heart that occurs. You know, oftentimes, those of us that maybe grew up in the church, we forget that we at least had 18 years to observe and to interact with and to learn 
and to know what it means to be a follower of Christ. And yet how often if someone comes to become a believer in Christ, do we say, glory, hallelujah, you're a Christian. We may get them up here, have them give their testimony of how they came to know Christ, baptize them, and you're on your way. And then, it's not that uncommon, a few years later, to see that individual, sort of their faith waning, not sure of things anymore. I'm discipling a man like that right now. Became a Christian probably about six, seven years ago. Very similar process. Had some time where he was invested in. And then his faith is sort of waning in some ways now. There is the continual impacting and teaching and instructing in the truth that must happen within our congregations. The continual reaching out to one another, caring for, discipling, investing in one another's lives. Don't forget that this sanctification, this seeing a mature Christian come about, takes some time. You don't become a Christian, and then all of a sudden, you're good to go. There is a process that happens. The second thing that we need to see here, though, is that there is a beginning and an end. And what I mean by this is not that the Christian life, somehow you reach a point where all of a sudden you stop growing spiritually. That's not what I'm insinuating here. But there is an understanding that at some point, one's faith must become their own. John discipled and invested in Gaius for a time, and he's no longer there. And so what is John saying? People have reported to me that this faith is your own. You are walking in the truth. You have an understanding, and you continue to hold firm to the belief of who Christ is. The final thing here, or the third thing we see, or two more, the third thing we see is that this discipleship also allows for observation of the discipler's life. We must invite people into our lives in order for them to learn about what it means to be a follower of Christ. In the same way that John uses the language of, you are my child, you are children, in the same way that my parents cared for and discipled and people poured into my own faith as a young man for at least 18 years, I got to observe my parents and all of the good and all of the bad and all of the ugly of what their own faith looked like. And how you live out your faith as an adult before children, whether a spiritual child or your actual physical child, will have an impact on how their faith develops. I'll never forget, I was probably about 10 years old. My father, he's 6'5", right? He's a big man. I'll never forget one day, I don't even remember what he got upset at me for, but he got very angry for something at me, and he yelled at me. And frankly, whatever his wrath was directed towards, I remember I deserved it. I don't even remember what it was that I had done, but it was bad enough, and I don't ever remember feeling like it wasn't justified. But later that evening, I'll never forget, later that evening, he comes to me, he sits me down on my bed in my room, and he looks at me, and he goes, Nathan, I yelled at you today, and I should not have done that. I let my temper get away from me, 
and I need to ask for your forgiveness. Imagine being a 10-year-old boy and your 6'5 father comes in and asks for your forgiveness. That has a tremendous impact upon your life. I'm telling you this story today. Why? Because it showed me that no one, no one is above being able to acknowledge their sins and their wrongdoing and seek reconciliation and forgiveness. And yet, in our own lives, so often our pride wells up and we don't want to acknowledge when we've erred. I don't remember all the things my parents taught me and said. I remember many. I don't remember all of them. But that one, that one has stuck with me. That is significant. Because so often we think we need to live as perfect people before either our spiritual children or our physical children who are also spiritually helping to nourish and develop. We think that we need to give this front of having it together, of having everything perfect, of having all of our sins dealt with and taken care of. And yet, what is the one thing that my father did that had the greatest, probably the greatest spiritual impact upon me? It was his willingness to acknowledge sin. And what we see here is that Gaius had clearly been taught what it looked like to live as a Christian by John. There had clearly been interaction on a very personal level so that Gaius and John had been walking side by side. You're not going to call someone your spiritual child without that sort of daily life interaction. And what we see here is he says, John says, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers, these brothers, based upon what we see in the rest of this passage, were more than likely uh, missionaries who had come into that particular church's presence, essentially as strangers we see in verse 5. But they were believers, and they were there to share the gospel with Gentiles, or those who had not heard the gospel yet. And what we see here is that Gaius had received them. And the brothers testified about this to John. They go to John and they're saying, hey, this Gaius guy, he received us with love and cared for us no matter what. We didn't even really know him. And yet because of the bond that we have in Christ, he received us, he loved us, he cared for us. And they recognize that that's a very unique quality. And John is saying, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. But this must be taught. This must be taught. This idea of caring for and giving freely to one another and to be welcoming in other believers who you may not necessarily know, this is something which must be taught. So who is to do the teaching? That's our role and responsibility in this congregation. It ought to begin with the leadership within the congregation. It ought to begin with the elders reaching out and discipling and caring for and showing what it looks like to love and care for the spiritual children of the congregation. But it doesn't just stop there. Every person in this church has a responsibility to look around. You know your relationships. What does it look like for you to care for those people? And specifically, Titus 2 refers to it this way. He says that the older men are to care for the younger men and to instruct them in the way of the Lord. 
And then the women, the older women, are to care for the younger women. And there are always older men, and there are always older women, and there's always younger men, and there's always younger women. So none of us have an excuse here. There are always individuals that we can be caring for, we can be discipling, and we can be teaching what it looks like to live as a believer, to be walking in the truth. The final thing we see here from the discipler is that the discipler continues to encourage. Right? John could have easily received this report from these brothers who came and said, hey, this guy, this guy, he's doing great. And John could have been like, man, I'm good, I'm glad. Well, he's doing good. And left it at that. But what does John do? He takes the time to encourage the faith that he sees. He takes the time to reach out to guys and say, hey, I see what's happening here. This is beautiful. The way you're loving like this. The way you continue to walk in the truth that you were taught. He wants to encourage guys. Are you taking time to encourage those whom you are discipling? Are you taking time to reach out and to care for them? You know, one of the things Ed Welch from uh, CCF, not too far from here, he always likes to talk about when you're counseling someone, when you're walking with someone, and they're going through a difficult time, the tendency is to look at all the negative things and try to all address all of the, the difficult aspects of their life, to try to solve all the problems. And one of the things I'll never forget that he said is, go on grace hunts. Go on grace hunts. Find the things that encourage them towards the Lord. It's not that you're not going to deal with the sin. It's not that you're going to ignore the bad stuff. But don't forget, the Lord is at work in this person. Encourage them. Find the grace going on in their lives. Even if it's a little thing, find it. Encourage it. Let them know you see it. There's enough trouble out there. Find the grace. Find how the Lord is working in their heart. Find how he's spurring them forward. And encourage that. Let him build on that. And that's exactly what John is doing here. And what we'll see next week is there's plenty of trouble going on that, guy, that John is writing to Gaius about. So how does he begin this letter? He doesn't begin this letter by going and talking about Di- Diotrephus, who we'll talk about next week. What does he do? He encourages. I see what you're doing. Keep going. Don't stop. The truth is there. You're following it. Go after it. And what is the result of this sort of attitude? What is the result of this discipleship? Let me just, real quick, before we move on, let me highlight again. You focus on the truth as the discipler. What is it that Christ has taught us? What is it that the scriptures reveal? Focus on the truth. Allow that person to grow so that they have a faith of their own. There's a beginning and end there. Right? They need to have... You, the, the purpose and the goal is that they shouldn't always be dependent upon you. Just as a child grows up and has to live their own adult life, we want Christians to grow up and be able to have their own spiritual children. We want them to be multiplying in that way. So there's a beginning and an end. There's an allowance for observation. View my life... See how I live, sinful person that I am, and see how that drives me towards the cross. And then encourage that younger believer. Encourage them. What is the result of this? 
If we live in this way, if we disciple those around us, we care for them, what is the result of this? One, we see an inward building up of the church. If you invest in the local body in this way, you will see an inward fortification and building up of the local body. And what you're going to see now is that when other Christians come into that sphere, they're going to look and they're going to, they're going to, frankly, they're going to feel and experience that love in ways that don't exist other places. They're going to know that love. They're going, oh my goodness, there's something here. Yeah, it's the Holy Spirit that's here. There's something here. What is, I'm being loved. I'm being cared for and you people don't even know me. There is a building up, and that's exactly what the brothers are seeing here in verses 3 and 5. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, the way that Gaius was walking with the Lord, and indeed you're walking the truth. But then furthermore, in verse 5, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. And you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. So it results in the encouragement and building up of the believers. It brings peace and it brings unity to the church. You know, one of the things that is most difficult about the American church is that there are so many churches. And basically... If you go into a church and it doesn't make you feel the way you want, you basically can just go across town, not even go across town, half the time you can just go around the corner, it's like Starbucks, and you just find another one. And you find one that makes you feel good. When in reality, what's happening in the early church is, this is all they got. They've only got each other. And they've got to figure out, okay, how are we going to build one another up? How are we going to encourage one another? How are we going to grow this church and fortify one another. You can't just pick up and leave and move on and decide you're done with this one. We need to live, even though that the reality of the American church is that there are churches everywhere, we need to live as if this is your family. You don't just pick up and leave your family. If this is your local body, you need to be encouraging and building up and fortifying this community. The second thing we, though, see is that there isn't just inward expansion. It isn't just inward growth. There isn't just that building up. But there's outward expansion. There's the pushing forward. Right? There's the going out of the gospel. And all of us have different roles and responsibilities in this. Right? We see at least three just in this passage. You've got John, who's identifying himself as the pastor. Right? He had that spiritual oversight to a congregation. You've got Gaius, who's the younger believer, who has his own role within the church. And you've got these other brothers, who were told in verse 7, for they have gone out for the sake of the name. That is, they've gone out under the banner of Jesus Christ. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. What are they doing? They're going out to the Gentiles. They are missionaries. 
They are going out to the unbelievers, and they are telling them about Christ. But why is this significant that they don't take anything from the Gentiles? If you're an unbeliever, and you know nothing about the church, you know nothing about how this works, how does it look when a missionary or pastor starts asking for financial support? It's terrible. It starts looking like a money grab. I'm just trying to take advantage of you. I want you to follow what I'm doing for 1999, and I can get you in here, and you can start following this thing, and you pay me, and, and then, right? It's not good. And so why is it that John is so focused here on this support of the workers? Because he recognizes that it is the role and responsibility of the church to care for those who are out there sharing the gospel with unbelievers, the missionaries, so that they don't have to be a burden on those individuals. We want giving to be an act of worship. We want giving to be an act that comes from willingness, not from obligation. That is not true giving. It ought to be an act of worship. And John recognizes this. The early, the early apostles, they knew that if they were out there ministering the gospel to unbelievers... And they're also asking for financial support. It muddies the waters. It interrupts what the whole mission of the gospel is. Which is to bring hope and salvation. And so we see this third role and responsibility that Gaius clearly is in a place where he can support these missionaries going out. And these guys are looking and saying, he didn't even know us and he cared for us took care of us. And he supported us. This is amazing. And John then closes verse 8 by saying, therefore we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers. We are one body. We are one body. And whether your role and responsibility in that body is to be in a financial place to give, maybe over exceedingly beyond just what we ought to give to the work of the church, whether your role and responsibility is the spiritual encouragement and nourishment through music, whether your role and responsibility is more administrative, whether your role and responsibility is proclaiming the gospel what, from the pulpit, let me put that that way. No matter what your role and responsibility is, we all have a role to play, and it makes us fellow workers for the truth, so that the gospel can push out, so that there can be an overflowing of this love and care and encouragement for one another, so that when the Gentiles are looking, they're experiencing and knowing this love in fresh ways in which they have never known before. This American society we live in is an incredibly fractured and disunified society the moment. And yet everything that John is preaching here, telling Gaius about, speaks to unity and to care for one another and to love and to pouring into one another. That is vastly different than how this country currently lives. If we live in that way, you will begin to see spiritual renewal and change around you. You'll see it in the inward church, the physical, present, 
visible church, you will see it here. And there will be an overflow into the outward. There will be. The question that then comes to us. Are we building up? Are we investing here? Are we discipling here? Are we building up? On both a personal and a corporate level, we must always be asking ourselves two questions. What does my own spiritual development look like? And by that I mean, are there others who are pouring into me? Am I putting myself in relationships where I'm allowing people to speak truth into my life in the same way that Gaius allowed John to speak? What does my own spiritual development look like? And what am I doing to support the spiritual development of those within my congregation? What am I doing? Because ultimately that is going to support the work of expansion Within God's kingdom. Brothers and sisters, it is, it is a high calling. It is a high calling to be caring for others within the congregation in this way. All of us, all of us have a responsibility to be doing it. Whether you're older and you have time maybe to minister to younger people, whether you're in the middle of sort of family life and you've got to minister to your children, probably first and foremost, more than anything else. Whether you're younger and you see other younger people around you, all of us, it ought to be like a waterfall. We need to be that cup that the waterfall is pouring into, and that cup is going to overflow. The more you pour into those around you, the more it will overflow. Let us pray this morning. Lord God, we desire, we desire, Lord, to pour out in this same way that John poured out into Gaius, Lord. We desire to care for this, the younger believers in the congregation, helping to grow and encourage and exhort their faith. We desire the same thing to happen to us with those who are spiritually farther down the line, Lord, who are spiritually grown. Lord, I ask for this congregation that that would be the emphasis, that would be the hope and desire, Lord God, that there would be a pouring out into one another, that there would be a developing of the relationships, ministering to one another in truth, that we ought to be walking in this truth of who Christ is, and that it would be impacting every aspect of our life, Lord God. Lord God, we need your help in this area. Lord, if we've been comfortable at all, just living our daily life and and haven't been doing this, it's not going to be an easy change. There will be some dying to self that needs to happen. And so we ask, Father, that you would humble our hearts, soften them, and make them willing, Lord God, to receive 
these words so that we might see true spiritual growth and change happening around us and then also and that from the overflow they would come ministering to one another outside even of this congregation, Lord God. Father, I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let us stand now as we close our time together by singing hymn 26, Come Thou Fount. Receive the benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.